0: Welcome back, everyone, to the sixth episode of the Take the Points podcast. I'm your co-host, Tate Seth, joined, as always, by Arjun Menon today, where we're, we're doing something that was inspired by Kevin Cole's podcast with Josh Hermsmeyer about a month ago, um, where we're doing football takes that could get us canceled so I'm half excited to say these, but also not super excited for the backlash that will come from some of these uh, Arjun, how are you feeling about your, your cancelable football takes?
1: I'm, I'm feeling um, pretty good about it. Actually. Like I, I spent pretty much a week trying to find the three best ones and, and putting them together in my mind and doing a little bit of research on the side, seeing like, you know, some of the, the points to back up my takes and honestly just thinking about how cancelable it would be. So pretty excited to hear my or to hear yours and then to talk through some of mine but yeah excited to jump into it
0: mm-hmm. yeah i think it'll be fun and you know we'll we'll each give out three takes that you know are either an overarching opinion about the NFL or like something that's happened in the past or something that's currently happening in the league right now and then you know after that uh you know i i put out a tweet asking for everyone's most cancelable football takes so so we'll read some of those too and and uh, kind of react. So, like, yeah, let's let's hear your first uh, cancelable football take.
1: So, my first take is about the Seahawks, and it the, it goes back to the the Super Bowl with the Patriots. So, like, honestly, like, I couldn't. I don't know how cancelable this is because I feel like there's like a split between people about this take. But I actually think throwing the ball from the one yard line in that Super Bowl in the fourth quarter where Russell threw the interception, throwing the ball was actually the right decision. Um, I know that I think we've talked about it a little bit, but um, you know, one of the things that I think it highlights is like the idea of game theory and I'm studying econ at Michigan. So one of the classes that I really want to take that I just don't have uh, the, like I, I don't have enough credits yet for is like a game theory class. And I really want to get into that. But it was interesting that like, you know, once I got older and started understanding the decision more, I flipped my opinion on I thought they should have ran it from the one yard line when I was younger and I was stupid and I didn't understand much about football. And I was like, oh, Marshawn Lynch beast mode, right? Like one of the best uh, short down yardage players in NFL history. But, you know, once you get older, and you start understanding how football works you kind of have an idea that maybe throwing the ball isn't wasn't the worst decision. It was actually the right decision. Now, obviously, the play call could have been better. Maybe throwing a slant where a cornerback could have jumped it easily like Malcolm Butler did wasn't the optimal decision. But one of the things that football analytics has found, and I think you wrote about it last summer by PFF, was um, as you add more defenders in the box, your EPA per pass goes up. Now, obviously, a shrunken field makes it a little bit tougher to throw the ball. But you can kind of mitigate that by running play action. And something I found was or that is kind of in conjunction with your findings is running play action with more defenders in the box also increases your EPA, to, EPA per pass as the number of defenders in the box increases as well. So I don't think the Seahawks throwing the ball from the one was a bad thing. Um, I think, you know, given the situation, they had a couple they could have burned one play by throwing the ball and then they could have ran it on third down if they really wanted to. Um, you know, throwing the Patriots off on second down and then maybe the Patriots back off a little to give Marshawn some room on third down. But I yeah, that that's my take. I don't I don't think the Seahawks throwing the ball was that bad of a decision. It was actually the right decision.
0: Mm-hmm. That's a that's a great one to to start us off with because you know, most people look at the result and not the process behind decisions. And so that's why people always go back to, oh, why would the Seahawks? throw there on when they had Marshawn Lynch. And you know, they ended up throwing an interception like, you know, in hindsight, they shouldn't have done that. Uh, my opinion has has flipped on this a couple times. So, you know, my initial reaction when it happened at the time was, oh, they should have ran there, like like this stinks that, that the Patriots won. But then uh, you know, you mentioned game theory and and like the, the economics at, at Michigan. And my econ 101 professor, freshman year Justin Wolfers, he actually wrote a New York Times piece about why the Seahawks passing on, uh, on the goal line was the right decision. And, uh, and he, he went it back to game theory and he said, if, if the Patriots thought that the Seahawks were going to run and, you know, the Seahawks thought that the Patriots, you know, thought that they were going to, they're going to run then, then passing was the right decision there. But it becomes like the princess bride scene where you're going back and forth and, you know, <laughs> you're thinking about what the other person's thinking about and all that stuff. Um, so once I read his article in class, i thought yeah like maybe the seahawks were right in in passing there and then i am reading michael lombardi's book and the whole first chapter is about bill belichick and he shared a really cool story where um in you know in in 2014 the the or 2013 the the patriots red zone defense was one of the worst in the league and so belichick spent the whole offseason designing a new package that he could put out, you know, within the, the five-yard line that he thought could, could change the game and, and make their red zone defense better. But he didn't get the opportunity to use it basically the whole year. So there was, there was no film on it until that play in the Super Bowl where it was still five defensive linemen, but all it was doing was it was taking out um, a safety and replacing it with a nickel corner. So he, the Michael Lombardi said that Belichick was watching the Seahawks sideline and that they looked a little disorganized uh, going into this, this final play of the, of the Super Bowl. And he, um, so he sent out the five defensive linemen to make it look like they were going to do their typical goal line package, but sent out Malcolm Butler and took off a safety. And so Malcolm Butler had better coverage skills than the safety that he took off. And so Malcolm Butler just made a great play. Like it wasn't necessarily the wrong decision. It was just you know a, a player making a, a big time play at the time. Um, but I, you know, I thought I thought that was really interesting that Belichick kind of kind of was able to know, and you know, that's why that's why he's the greatest defensive mind of all time and, and greatest head coach of all time.
1: Yeah, no, it, it's really that's really cool, and obviously, you know, I, one of my takes that I was going to talk about that I have changed out was a Bill Belichick take, um, in a good in a good light, obviously, and you know, it's interesting. I I'm not I wouldn't say I'm the biggest fan of Michael Lombardi. I think he has some takes that. I don't necessarily agree with. I think he was saying that Brandon Staley should be fired this year after kind of the fourth down decisions against the chiefs late in the year and the timeout in the Raiders game. But, but it's cool that, you know, you found some really cool insights from that book. And um, obviously that was a really, really good talking point right there. So interested to hear your first take um, for, for this episode.
0: Yeah. Mine is, mine is kind of putting Belichick into a good light, but it's more cancelable than that. So (laughs) it's a, Tom Brady isn't a top three quarterback of my lifetime. So (laughs) let me preface this by saying this doesn't mean that he didn't have the best career of any quarterback, right? Like that's not a debate. Like, you know, he's, he's obviously had the best career he's played for so long, you know, had so much playoff success, a lot of regular season success, all that stuff. But as a pure quarterback, I think there are three and maybe four quarterbacks who are better than him. So Patrick Mahomes, Peyton Manning, Aaron Rodgers are the three quarterbacks that I've seen play that I think are better pure quarterbacks than Tom Brady. You could squeeze Drew Brees in there if you're feeling bold. Um, some Brady haters I know that are really anti-Brady like to put Phillip Rivers ahead of Brady. They like to put Ben Roethlisberger ahead of Brady, but I'm not going to do that. Um, I, think, I think Brady is... Is right there. Um, you know, if you if you just look at EPA per play, which I think does a good job of measuring quarterbacks over a very large sample size when you can kind of have all different supporting casts. Mahomes, Manning, Rogers all have higher regular season EPA per plays than Brady. And then Brady's whole thing is supposed to be about, you know, winning in the playoffs. And you know, he's done a lot of that, but Kevin Cole put out, you know, a really interesting study on expected winning percentage based on how you play in the playoffs. And Brady, when, you know, when it was him versus Manning only had a 49% expected winning percentage in the playoffs, but the Patriots ended up winning 75% of their games. So, you know, it was, it was, um, 26% over expected because of how good his supporting cast is, how good Belichick has been. And, uh, you know, I think, I think when, you know, when, when, um, Manning and Brady were going at it. Manning was was the better quarterback, you know, from from that stretch of of the of the two thousands decade. And then Aaron Rodgers was the best quarterback twenty eleven through twenty fifteen. And then since you know twenty sixteen, I guess since Mahomes really started get going, like he's been the best quarterback in this period. So I don't really see a five year period where Brady's been the top quarterback in the league. And so because of that, I don't think you know he's a just, just from a pure quarterback perspective, he's not a top three quarterback that, that I've seen.
1: Yeah, that's, that's a great, that's a great first take also. Um, I, I tend to agree with you there. I think, uh, like, I think Brady is like, obviously one of the smartest quarterbacks of all time. Um, but I, I really like that point of how you mentioned like the five-year rolling spans and like how he's never been that, like that type of quarterback for five years. Um, I'm actually, I'm going to kind of like reference one of my own pieces that, I think it, it did cause a lot of controversy. Um, it was my it was the QB wins over expected um, article I wrote like two months ago. I'm not saying it was the best way of of going about it. I thought it was it, it did a solid job of kind of explaining like what I wanted to it to explain. Basically, given a quarterback surrounding cap, uh supporting cast, like how many wins were they expect? How many adjusted wins, adjusted for one score wins, were they expected to win versus how many did they actually win? and Brady like he literally performed at the expectation now that mace that he was below a bunch of like pretty bad quarterbacks or some pretty bad quarterbacks but i think there's some nuance to the discussion and like it's very hard to elevate an elite team and in um in Tampa he's had like very he's had a lot of help and in like my qb help composite score metrics he's pretty much near the top um, in, in 2020 and 2021 over the course of three years. So I agree with the fact that like, you know, he I don't think he's really been challenged as much as, as other quarterbacks. And like, he's played up to the level that I think we've expected him to play. And I don't like, I don't really know if he's really elevated the roster, which kind of goes along with your point that like over five years, he really hasn't been the best quarterback in any like set of five years. Um, so yeah, I, I, I agree with your take there. And I think that's, that was a great first, first take from Mia.
0: Mm-hmm. Yeah. No, thanks. I'm, uh, I'm glad uh, it went over well here. I don't think it'll, it'll go over well on Twitter. or I or to tweet something out like that. Um, but yeah, no, the, the point about the supporting cast is like kind of what got me thinking about this. Like, um, you know, Zach Kiefer just did the Andrew Luck podcast, the six part series that feel like that. I thought was fantastic. And he had a really good point. He said when Peyton Manning sat out for the Colts one year, they went two and 14 when Brady sat up for the Patriots, they went 11 and five with Matt yeah. Castle, who was a career backup. Mm-hmm. And then Brady left the Patriots and they went seven and nine with the most COVID ridden roster in the league in 2020, and then made the playoffs with a rookie quarterback who was the, who was considered the QB five in his draft class the next year after that. So, you know, I'm sure Brady would have done well in the playoffs with the Patriots after that, but the supporting cast and the coaching has always been there for him. So that's why I just, I just move him down my, my rankings. Uh, you know a little bit, a little bit more than than most people. But enough about that. Um, let's let's hear your your second uh, cancel will take. All
1: right, uh, my second cancel take very very analytics based. Uh, I'm sure the film guys and and the old school guys will hate this one. Having a non elite slash mediocre running back is actually more helpful to an offense than having an elite running back. Now I think in theory this sounds kind of dumb, but this is the way I think about it. I think teams in general um they kind of try to like compensate for the fact that like they have this like really elite rushing talent and some like two years ago the the syracuse blitz competition i think the the competition topic was like the optimal pass run ratio um i i didn't know how to code at that time and i, I know you and, and connor and uh, joey participated in that and i think the end result like you guys kind of told me like there wasn't an outcome that really seemed like um define like the optimal pass run ratio so like I think because we know that passing is more efficient than running on average you want to be passing at a higher rate than you run the ball especially on early downs mm-hmm. but I think having an elite running back can cause offensive coordinators to kind of like outthink themselves in the fact that oh we need to get this guy the ball 15 to 20 times a game because he's this quote unquote game changing back or he he's an elite running back and I think, this take applies to not only the short run, but in the long run as well. If you have a mediocre running back in the short run, you're more, more likely to pass the ball um, more often than not. And you look at some of the chiefs teams, right? Like Patrick Mahomes, Kareem Hunt is, was a very good running back in his first two years. Obviously, you know, he's a kind of an asshole for what he did to that woman and why he got kicked off the chiefs. But once they transitioned from like a cream hunted, Uh, Damian Williams, Daryl Williams, Clyde Edwards-Hilaire, all these like mediocre running backs, they were still an elite offense. Tom Brady in Tampa was playing with Leonard Fournette, still an elite offense. The Buffalo Bills, elite offense with Singletary because having these bad running backs kind of forced them to pass the ball more because these running backs wouldn't create anything on their own. So I think that's the short-run part of it. In the long run, having an elite running back means you're probably going to have to justify paying him uh, a higher percentage of the cap than if you – paid a mediocre mediocre running back like a Ronald Jones or something for for the Chiefs right the the Browns for how analytically gifted they are um you know they did pay Nick Chubb a sizable contract they did pay Kareem Hunt a second contract right like the the Titans had to allocate a huge chunk of their um, or not a huge chunk but like a decent sized um, part of their cap to Derrick Henry so having these elite running backs kind of like makes teams think that they need to run the ball more often than they should in the short run. And, th- and then in the long run, teams feel like they have to pay these running backs what they're worth because, you know, obviously like head coaches and offensive coordinators think higher of running backs than, than analytics people do. So um, that's, that's my second take.
0: Mm-hmm. Yeah, no, this, this is a really good one. And it's kind of a good way to think about like the, the cause and effects of of certain stuff happening. And, you know, I think, I think like, you know, when you, when you kind of look at EPA per play, or you know yards per play, or, or anything like that, like the like when when the Titans' offense was was doing really well, um, their their EPA per rush was zero point zero two, so they were you know about an average offense if they were to just run it all the time. Um, but their EPA per pass during that time was zero point two two, so it was zero point two you know points uh, over the the expected points added from the rush. And so even though like people were giving a lot of credit to Derrick Henry being the engine of that offense, it was really Tannehill, a good offensive line, AJ Brown, Corey Davis, Arthur Smith that were mm-hmm. all together in, in like propping up the, the Titans offense and everything. And, you know, I think a lot of people will point to, oh, like they, they were able to be successful because of the rushing the success because of the, the play action and stuff. But, you know, the, the, um, the the run has been established for for years now. Like like teams will go into games just prepared to stop the run to run fit. You know in the first quarter. Um. You know when I when I used to talk to uh my the the football coach that that coached at at the high school that uh, I went to, he used to say all the time. He was like, "Oh, our, our game plan in the first quarter is to stop the run, and like it's okay if we get beat by the pass." So that's just how I've been doing it. That's how I've been taught my you know my whole career or yeah. whatever. And so, you know, it it got me really thinking about how other coaches really approached it. And I've noticed that, you know, teams will want to run fit in the first quarter of games just to kind of set the tone. And so when when you can take advantage of that early on, and like it hasn't hurt the the Chiefs or the Bills or the Rams last year didn't have a good run game and they were fine. And you know, all these best te- the the Bengals, you know, were were part of that that uh tier two and all these good teams are are you know kind of not having good rush games but they're still able to pass a lot and to pass and, and make it work
1: yeah um before before we hop onto your second take I want to shout out um, Chris Clement goes by coach C Clement on Twitter he had a he had a really cool graph today um it was basically saying a f- the 50th percentile passing offense equals the 90th percentile rushing attack um, I'm not sure how far back he he went to like look at this data but basically he was saying that like even if you're in like the top 10 percent of the past x number of years um in terms of your rushing you're still only an average like that's still equal to an average passing attack and the the best rushing attack of the past 20 years so i guess this is the past 20 years the best rushing attack of the past 20 years will only equate to the seven the 70th percentile best um, passing offense of the past 20 years. So, you know, kind of goes along with my, uh, with my take as well, you know, shout out Chris for that, but let's move on to uh, your second take.
0: Mm-hmm. Yeah, actually my, my second take is pretty similar to this just on the other side of the ball. I think it's a bad thing to have an elite run defense. So, <laughs> so, you know, I mean, by saying this, like this is not saying that you shouldn't try to have a good run defense or to to avoid having a bad run defense, because, you know, when you have a bad run defense, you know, there's, there's a lot of problems that can, stem from that but if your run defense is too good teams will stop running on you which becomes beneficial to them just because of everything we talked about with passing becoming uh more efficient than rushing and so the the bucks run defense i think is the best example of this so they were too good last season. Teams had a 9.1 pass rate over expected against them on early downs. And Washington was the second closest with a 4.9% pass rate over expected against them. So Tampa's rush defense was so good that teams were basically passing on them double what it was of the second place. In 2020, it was a similar story with Tampa where they had a 7.2 pass rate over expected against um, and then Atlanta was second that year, you know, with Grady Jarrett playing at a very high level that season, teams didn't want to run up against him also. And so, you know, they're, they're passing a lot more against them. And so when, when teams, you know, feel like they have to pass against you more often um, they'll, they'll do it. And, and in the aggregate, they'll be more efficient uh, overall against, against your defense. And if you do end up with an elite run defense, again, you have to, you probably have invested draft picks. In, in those in those spots, um, you have to give them contract extensions if they play well because you don't want to just let players walk because it sends a bad message to the locker room. And so that might mean that you're taking away resources that could be spent elsewhere on making your team better. And run defense still positively correlates with winning, but it correlates the least out of the four facets of the game. So, um it's it's yeah, it's 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 just having a, a very, very good elite run defense could be minus EV for you in the long term.
1: Yeah, that that <clears throat> that's um I, I think the the whole I think the whole argument is correct. I, I'm curious, this is like I, I'm not sure how cancelable this is actually though. Uh because I, I feel like this is like a common idea, maybe maybe a, just among analytics people, but but I do agree that like in the long run, like over the course of a season sometimes having a like too too good of a run defense is is negative ev um but you like you don't want to have like a chargers run defense Mm -hmm. where it's like i think the the issue with run defense is like if it's elite you're going to be thrown the ball's going to be thrown against you more and that's that's going to be tough to stop because like most passing attacks are are positive epa but the run like run defense if you have an elite offense you want to have them on the field as much as possible cuz they're probably going to be adding points like every, like almost every single drive but if you have like a run defense that is such a negative to the point where they can't stop the run so and i know time of possession is is a really bad stat to measure any type of efficiency but if your run defense is keeping your offense off the field for a, like a longer amount of time than normal then that's also more negative ev in my opinion than having an elite run defense like if you can't stop the run obviously that's worse than than being able to stop the run Um, but i think like that kind of trade-off is is a really interesting topic that i think maybe we should like be thinking about a little bit more um because you you don't want to be on like the tail ends of the spectrum i think you do want to fall right in the middle where like it's it's respectable enough but Um, it's not, it's not too detrimental and it's not too good to where it's like negative EV in the long run.
0: Yeah. Yeah, no, exactly. And that's a great point. Like the, like the charge, like if we use the Chargers as an example, like, so they have one of the best passing offenses in the league, right? So they're they're you know, passing offense since that's the most important thing in football right now, the more games that the chargers play or the more drives that they have within each game, the better chance that they are going to get to beat most opponents but when they had a, as bad of a run defense as they did last year, that's how you get games like against the Texans where Rex Burkhead runs for, you know, over a hundred yards and the Texans offense, you know, decreases the amount of drives that's happening. Mm-hmm. And um, and th- that's a thing like, so decreasing the amount of drives that, that happens in a game doesn't necessarily mean that the underdog wins more because you usually have to do minus EV stuff to decrease the amount of drives yeah. like running the ball. But when you have such a bad run defense that it's actually plus ev to run the ball and you still can get a positive epa and positive success rate out of it then you know then you're doing both things you're decreasing the amount of guys increasing the amount of variance that Mm -hmm. will hurt the chargers and you're you're still getting positive gains out of it so yeah you're right it's a very it's a very tough line to draw and you don't want to fall victim to a bad run defense so it's obviously it's fine to have Mm -hmm. a good run defense you know if it's just if it's just too good you know, there's things that you can do, like taking a defensive lineman off the field and replacing him with a, a safety or a, a slot corner or something just to make sure that you can you can stop the pass as well if teams decide to to pass a lot on you. Yeah.
1: Um, and shout out, shout out to Connor for the uh, the underdog, like the, the variance thing that you were talking about. I know we looked into that during the season. Um, all right. My final take. I'm going to end us off with a bang. I want to hear your reaction immediately after. Patrick Mahomes is a system quarterback.
0: Oh my God.
1: <laughs> no, 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 no. I'm kidding. I'm kidding. Okay. I'm, I'm kidding. I remember I, I was joking with my friends after his MVP season and I was, and they they thought it that was stupid also. Um but yeah, that's that's not my last take. Um okay, yeah. you know, I, I had to I had to include a Bengals take in here. And it's not it's not really a Burrow take, it's an offensive take. Mm-hmm. If the Bengals selected Panay Sewell, over jamar chase they wouldn't have made the playoffs um i think okay so one of the things that we're we've been doing at pff is kind of like really diving deeper into these the ideas of like weak link units Mm -hmm. um so secondary and o-line like those are the two big units where it's like you're only as strong as your weakest link because your weakest link is going to get targeted repeatedly over and over by defensive coordinators especially in the playoffs um but my reasoning for for why the Bengals wouldn't have made the playoffs if they drafted Sewell is like, first of all, they already had Jonah Williams and Riley Reef at tackle. So he would have probably been slotted in as a guard. And, you know, he is a pretty big guy, right? He's like 6'6", uh, 330, right? Like he has the weight to play guard, but he's obviously much more, his value is higher on the outside. So he would have been playing completely out of position at guard. Second, you know, that doesn't, you know, the Bengals starting him at guard doesn't decrease their weakest link. Right. Cause he wouldn't have, he probably wouldn't have been their weakest link. It would have been like uh, whoever their right guard was. I think Jackson Carmen or like Carmen, ha- yeah. or Madenji or like Trey Hopkins at center. Like he's, mm-hmm. he's average, probably a little bit below average, but the, the point I'm trying to make is like, the Bengals are so reliant on on explosive plays, right? And Chase is like one of the most explosive, if not the most explosive deep ball receiver in the NFL. And even when he, even not in the deep ball, if he he can take an intermediate um, thrown ball, 10 to 19 yards and take it to the house as we saw against the Chiefs and against the Ravens. So you eliminate that explosiveness and the Chiefs and the Bengals were already a below average offense when it came to success rate um, using their entire body of work. So you eliminate their explosiveness. You can maybe improve their efficiency on the ground. You could marginally increase their their down-to-down efficiency. But you take away some of their explosive plays and you take away a very, very good weapon that took away some of the elite coverage play from T. Higgins. And now you're kind of left with two good but not elite receivers in Higgins and Boyd and a maybe average, slightly below average offensive line so I think the Bengals would have struggled a little bit had they not had the elite receiving core of Boyd, Chase, and Higgins because their weakest link on their offensive line still wouldn't have pushed them as far as they needed to go when it came to the regular season and the playoffs. Mm-hmm.
0: Yeah, so I can I, I I do like the thought process here. Um, it, w- would your opinion change if they took Rashawn Slater instead of Penny Sewell in, in this scenario? Um, you know, Sewell was good last year, but Slater was was very very good and. Um, and maybe move like Riley reef into, into right guard or something.
1: I don't, I don't think it would have changed because my whole, my whole argument is the idea of like weak links and like Mm -hmm. whoever they drafted wouldn't have been the weakest link like most, or probably even if they were forced to play guard, like they still had two guys that, or maybe even three, if you count Riley reef, who were weaker, like links than them that would have got targeted. Um, by defensive coordinators, and they did get targeted. I mean, like Aaron Donald one-on-one with Quinton Spain. I mean, that's that's targeting a weak link, and yeah. Donald destroyed Quentin Spain on that fourth and two. So, yeah, my I don't think my argument would have changed even if Slater was maybe a little bit uh better suited to play inside than Sewell if he was forced to. But, but yeah, I'm gonna stick with my with my thought process there. Mm-hmm.
0: Yeah, no, I I, I like it. It's, it's very well reasoned. I think I just I I. I don't know. It's, it's tough to, to kind of project exactly what would have happened. You know, I think Sewell could have done wonders for their run game specifically and, and really, really helped um, get that going. And, and, you know, cause Zach Taylor really like leaned on the run at the beginning of that season. So it could have made it, you know, a little bit better for them and and taken less pressure off the passing offense, especially the explosive plays. But I think T Higgins is, is that good where he can be a wide receiver one now in the league. I think Boyd and Uzama are both second and third receiving options. And if, you know, the Bengals didn't take chase because they had other plans at receiver, like they signed Corey Davis in free agency when he was available or signed Kendrick Bourne or, or Fuller, or, you know, those, those types of players or you know, one or two of those guys. Then maybe they they would have had you know a comparable unit, but yeah, Chase is that good where him alone might have been the reason why the Bengals were were able to get into the playoffs last year. So so I I, I do see where you're where you're headed from there.
1: Yeah, Madden and Madden gave, gave him an 87 overall rating today, below Amari Cooper, and you know that was like the end of the world for Bengals <laughs> fans.
0: <laughs> um, and, and
1: people in general today on Twitter. Yeah,
0: that's true. One of my, I was gonna put as one of my takes that uh, that didn't end up making the cut is I don't care about jersey numbers and Madden ratings as much as anyone else. Like, like I've <laughs> i tried to care about those because everyone else seems to care about them, but I just I just can't get myself to care about it. But that that uh, I didn't end up including that.
1: But, yeah, <laughs> yeah. Madden Madden is such a such a bad game now that I really don't care what they do anymore. Yeah. Um, but yeah, sorry, let's, we're not here to talk about video games. Let's hear uh, your final take.
0: Yeah. Um. Okay. So, so my, my final take is playoff success is the most overrated aspect of football when it comes to the legacies of players, coaches, anything mm-hmm. else. So the, uh, along that line. So um, I love to use Sean Payton and Drew Brees uh, as an example for this. So especially the, 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 the late career of, of both of them. So 2017, were the better team against Minneapolis lost on the Minneapolis miracle 2018. They have one of the, the best. So in an accuracy rate over expected that I built for, for PFF last summer, drew Brees 2018 was the most accurate season of all time. Like he like, mm-hmm. there were like 40 throws or like some, some very small number that weren't like charted as accurate for him that year, which was like insane. And, um, they had a great run game and everything, and they lost because of the the pass interference call. They should have went to the Super Bowl that year. You know, if the if that gets called correctly, um, and that happens, but you know, they did have the chance to win in overtime. But you know, again, overtime playoff uh, is is even more random than just playoffs itself. Twenty nineteen, um, you know, they they were favored pretty pretty heavily against the Vikings. Um, again, the coin flip in overtime, like you can you can kind of chalk that up to To being something that happened, but like really, like they just they just got unlucky that Kirk Cousins' variance, which never happens because he's very consistent, actually happened one day, and like Mm -hmm. he played really well against them. Then 2020, they had smashed the Bucks twice in the regular season, both times. Uh, Jared Cook fumbles up seven they have a um, uh, something happened on a punt return that gave the Bucks the ball back, you know, another time that game. So, so really two crucial moments other than, you know, just like typical, typical game state that really ruined the saints in that game. So, you know, if, 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 three or four plays go differently for the saints from 2017 to 2020 we're talking about them as an nfc dynasty as you know drew Brees having three rings possibly sean payton having three rings but because of that they weren't able to make the super bowl any of those years um you know the the playoffs are a format where nick Foles, eli manning and joe flacco have ended up with their legacies changing because of three or four games and so I think that's just like a good message for for how fluky it is. And then on the flip side of that, Peyton Manning and Aaron Rodgers, you know, are both amazing, you know, like I mentioned earlier like the two 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 of the three best quarterbacks in my lifetime, and they've had some really bad luck in the playoffs. So, I think when when people bring up things about like Lamar Jackson uh not performing well in the playoffs or Joe Burrow going to the Super Bowl in his first year and everything, it's just it's so blown out of proportion because the best team in the playoffs wins, you know, 60% of the time or less, which is not a good indicator of, of legacy.
1: Yeah. That, that's <laughs> such a good take. And the, the saints for years have been my um, like my second favorite team that I root for because uh, Drew Brees was a former charger and I love Reggie Bush growing up. So it's always tough to see like this team would always dominate the regular season. And then when, once it got to the playoffs, just this random shit happen every single year. Mm-hmm. And like, like i would have loved to see sean payton versus bill belichick in 2018 like I, at breeze's peak like that might have been you know alvin Kamara was was um and mark ingram were, were playing really well that year michael thomas was playing really well like that would have been one of the greatest chess matches we've probably ever seen um in an nfl history in the super bowl i think so i think mike lopez from the nfl office did a study on this like the the nfl and I, I i'm trying to find the post right now but the nfl like the the best team doesn't always win mm-hmm. right like and co- he, i think he compared it to the nba and the nhl where like the team that's like favored or the team that's like better in power ranking like tend to win more often in the nba and nhl than the nfl and you're right it's just like variance can happen on, in any given game and so if if we're attributing playoff success to, to players, then we should be talking about like what actually happened. And like, sometimes a player can get hot and go on a three or four game streak like Nick Foles did. Um, But sometimes they just get unlucky like Drew Brees did. And I think that's a very good point that you brought up that, you know, we shouldn't, we shouldn't be talking about playoff success when mentioning legacies. Obviously, obviously it matters a little bit. um, But when you're comparing Eli Manning to Phillip Rivers, you know, Eli Manning never led, the league and EPA per play in any, any single year or any like stretch of years. And the Phillip rivers for a long time was a top five quarterback. Eli Manning was like barely top 10. So, you know, I, I know I make a lot of references to, to charters players, but that's because like, there are a lot of legacies from them that were tainted because of um, a lack of playoff success.
0: Mm-hmm. Yeah, exactly. I, I agree. With, I agree with all of that. And um and yeah, no, this was this was good. Like, do you did you have any any takes that didn't make the cut that, that you want to briefly share?
1: I had one, um, that the Patriot success was should be more attributed to Bill Belichick than Tom yep. Brady. Um, I'm I don't really want to get too much into that. You know, we we've talked with Brad Spielberger about Bill Belichick a lot, and I've like my respect for, for Bill has just grown over the years. So And even like when he had a bad year in 2020, I was still like, okay, we, we know he's going on his revenge tour in 2021 and they made the playoffs with the fifth best or the fifth ranked quarterback in in that draft.
0: Yeah. Yeah. (laughs) At work the other day, I uh, I was talking to a friend about like how much I, how much respect I have for Bill Belichick and a guy I've never met before, like turned around in his chair and he's like, he's like, I hate Bill Belichick. He's like (laughs) spy gate, deflate gate, tuck gate. And I was like, I was like, first of all, I was like, DeflateGate, he probably didn't have anything to do with, and like, was kind of like a weird situation, anyways. Tuckgate isn't anything that he did himself; like, it was just a bad call by the refs. Like, you can you can say Spygate, it, attribute that to him, but but all your other points are are invalid. So, um, so hopefully, hopefully that guy wasn't a uh, a, a senior manager or, or anything, or, or you know, it was an undercover <laughs> boss situation. But I had to I had to spread the Bill Belichick gospel there. Yeah. Uh, um, yeah, no, my, uh, my, my takes that didn't make the cut. Um, I was, was kind of similar to one that was mentioned on Kevin Cole and Josh Herzmeyer's, uh, you know, cancelable football takes podcast where I said head coaches should have a game manager to do fourth downs, timeouts, challenges, all that other stuff, because they have so many things to do on a week to week basis that it's very hard for them to, to get a hang of, of the rest of the stuff. And we've seen that with Sean McVay, Kyle Shanahan, all those other types of coaches, Andy Reid, um, who, who are just really, really good football coaches, but, but they, they don't know how to do that stuff well. So if someone were to just manage that and practice that, um, that would be a lot better for them, but yeah, no, um, a lot of fun to, to share these. Um, we'll, we'll, uh, we'll now we can do our, our, uh, tweets where, where we read off some of the replies that, that people have sent about cancelable football takes. So, so let's go into that. Now that me and Arjun have shared some of our own cancelable football takes, I also put out a tweet asking for you know some some of the listeners cancelable football takes. So we got some some really good replies. So thanks for everyone who who submitted some. And uh, Arjun, what was what was one of the, your favorites that that was replied in in the tweet?
1: Um, so one that I read that I was a little bit confused about comes from Brian Fry at Lav- Lavernus Dingle. Uh, said the rules aren't friendly enough towards offenses look spot fouls are probably the dumbest thing in all of football. Mm -hmm. Um, You know, you and me playing this like flag football league in in Mish at, you know, Michigan. And like, whenever someone commits a DPI, they're pretty much, like the offense pretty much moves half, like at least halfway across the field. Cause we, we play spot fouls also cause that's how the NFL is played. Like the fact that an underthrown ball can be a reward for the offense, like Carson Wentz against the Niners in that, rainy i think sunday night football game posted the seventh best quarterback efficiency in that week on dpis alone do you know how dumb that is <laughs> so i don't i don't really know how like how much more f- rule friendly um the nfl can get towards offenses because dpis and, and like unnecessary roughness and roughing the passer penalties are, are really really dumb
0: mm-hmm. yeah no that's that's one that i think is very cancelable i think I think that it's it's too offensive based right now. Yeah. Um, that's why I, you know, uh, you know, I've I've heard of the argument for the when the ball goes out the back of the end zone and like the defense gets the ball. Like a lot of people don't like that rule, but it's literally the only rule that benefits the defense. Um, you know, all all the other rules benefit the offense right now. Um, so so I, I don't know about that one, but um, Jackson Hampton, uh, you know, at J. Hampt Analytics, uh, he he gave two good ones. I thought when he said. When run well, the triple option is the most aesthetically pleasing offense, which is true. Like you know, it's it's very like I I see why coaches want to call runs when like they work out because you know runs that are very well blocked and well schemed are so aesthetically pleasing to watch more so than passing plays that end up doing well, uh, even though they're more efficient. And then this one I don't know about. Um, he said, "Do the fact it made Aaron Rodgers uh, take his play to the highest level in years out of spite." The Jordan Love pick was actually good. I, I I don't think Rodgers was uh, playing well out of spite. Um, you know, I'm sure he could have found some other things to motivate him when he was in his slump for a couple of years before the pick. I think it was just he took a year to get used to the Lafleur offense, and Lafleur has been very helpful to him. Um, you know, for for his for the rest of his career so far. So, yeah,
1: yeah. Um, I don't. <sighs> When when did Aaron Rodgers break up with Danica Patrick? It was in 2021, I think, right? Or something? Or oh, like 20... before then? I don't know. I I don't know. I, I like to think that uh players do like you know the uh, TikToks where it's like when you need gym motivation you just look at your ex, yeah. ex or something. <laughs> something yeah. like that. Um but yeah, that's a it's an interesting one. I I don't really like to attribute I would attribute more Rodgers' success to uh familiarity in the offense like you said. Um, Okay. I'm going to read this one by David Howman. He goes by at underscore DH 44 underscore on Twitter said "Um, with the advent of split safety defenses, safeties have become the most valuable position in defense. The NFL just hasn't realized it yet. Um, Like I'm all for safeties becoming more like becoming more valuable in the eyes of people in the industry. I've personally written like two articles about why safeties should get paid more and how they are going to get paid more. And that, rung true this offseason with guys like Marcus Williams you get 14 a year, pure free safeties like Quandre Diggs getting 13 a year, who was going to be in a split safety scheme in Seattle with Sean Desai's hiring. Um, but I, I don't think safeties will ever be the most valuable position in, on defense just because they're not involved in enough plays to be as valuable. Um, you know, a pure free safety will maybe ha- like get targeted like once or twice a game on a deep cross or like a go route up the seam. And in the run game, they're pretty much the last line of defense. So unless everyone on the defense messes up, they're really not affecting the run game um, in in single high schemes. Now with split safety schemes, like David said, they might get a little more action, but they're still not getting involved as much as linebackers or, um, or DNs or even corners who have a more important role in the pass game. So um, as much as I love safeties and why I think they're more valuable than people think uh, they I don't think they'll ever be the most valuable even in uh the too high era.
0: Yeah, I think, I think like a center field safety doesn't have enough impact on the game, but more of a box safety or someone who's very versatile and can be moved all around the field, like a Derwin James, who's kind of like the ultimate chess piece um, is, is someone that that is very, very valuable to defense. So I I, I see where David is, is coming from there. Um, Okay. So Zach, Zach Radlow at Zach Radlow. um, (laughs) He had a couple of ones that I I think are, are very cancelable. So he said never, and I mean never. Run the ball unless it's fourth, it's uh, fourth and short or goal to go situation. No, Zach. I'm sorry. Um, <laughs> you you have to run like sometimes just to just to keep defenses guessing. Like I don't know what exactly the optimal run pass ratio it is, but it's not 98 to two. It's 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 closer to to 70 30. If I had to if I had to put a number on it. Um. Then he said draft QBs early round one and two. And often, even if you have a star, draft QBs early is, is fine. You know, they're they're very valuable. We saw the Eagles kind of do this with Jalen Hurts and it's worked out very well for them. Um, if you have a star, though, you don't necessarily need to draft a quarterback. Um, and then he said, no RB is worth drafting, which is, is again, like one where I I can kind of see where he's coming from. But, you know, the thing about running backs don't matter is it's because in the NFL, all running backs are good. Like they, they all are like, that's why they're in the NFL and they're all about the same level. So you can take them in the fourth, fifth, sixth, seventh round afterward and like get like a serviceable running back, but you need to take them somewhere there, like just to have some like status on them. And so that they have a little bit of talent. They can't all be undrafted free agents.
1: Yeah, no, that was a, that was a really good one by, or a couple ones by Zach. Um, Okay. I'm going to go to one by... Kyle Bowler's burner goes by Ad ball and baller uh, on Twitter Got a couple ones. Cliff is the first coach fired. Um, I don't agree with this. They just extended him in kind for like four years. Plus I think our friend Connor McQuiston is going to take them to the Super Bowl this year. So, you know, why are you going to fire a Super Bowl winning coach? Um, the, The Browns are the best roster in football. I don't think that's that cancelable. I think they, they obviously like, it seems like they're making a big push all in this year or maybe in the next couple of years. Um, did retain a couple of their important pieces long-term Denzel Ward. Um, I wasn't too big a fan of the Najoku extension, but um, they they have like important pieces locked up on both sides of the ball. T Higgins outperforms Jamar Chase. This is interesting because like, I think the, the, the outlook on T Higgins is, is, there's like a decently wide range of outcomes i think higgins could outperform chase simply because chase gets most of the number one receiver cover or cornerback coverage from other teams so higgins is going against cb2 or potentially cb3 if he moves in this in the slot so i i don't think that's that cancelable um i actually kind of like that one as a as a fun as a fun take and then um aj Dillon leads the league in rushing he put plus plus eight thousand because that's what you, you know the odds are if you bet it uh, like Aaron Jones is still there. So unless Aaron Jones gets injured, Dylan's going to get, he's not going to get enough carries to lead the lead in rushing. I do. I did see that the Packers are implementing more two back sets, which I'm really excited for. I don't, I don't think I'm, I'm going to play fantasy that this year, outside of maybe like one league or two leagues with, you know, uh, people in the industry, but just because I'm going to probably be betting more. So I don't have time for fantasy, but I would really like Aaron Jones this year in fantasy. Like I would, I'd make him a first round pick, but I haven't done any research. So don't, don't take my advice.
0: Yeah, no, I'm with you. I think Aaron Jones is gonna get a lot of receiving work this year. And I'm excited to see what LaFleur does with that. Um, but yeah, no, those, those are some great ones. I'll just I'll read off some of the other ones um just, just so in case people didn't see the tweet, but still want to hear some of the replies they can know. So Zach Rogers said invest in defensive line before coverage. Um and so he said, coverage is a weak link system. Like you talked about, you know, earlier in, in this episode. Um, so you want to get as many people in coverage as possible, get four elite defensive linemen and you can put seven guys in coverage. So kind of like the 49ers model that they've been following where their defensive line is great every single year, but their corners are a little shaky and, and they're, but they're able to make it work. Uh, ESO at ESO Adam underscore 74 said, if Jay Cutler had any football drive, he would have been a better QB than Aaron Rodgers." <laughs> um He's a, he's a diehard Bears fan. Um, I don't know about this one, and I'm all for having biased opinions about your hometown quarterback, but that's that's a that's a stretch there. Um, Sam Schwartzstein said, offensive coordinators have more impact on a game than a head coach, which I think he's right about on a specific game. Offensive coordinators do control it more than the head coach. Hmm. Head coaches do a lot of stuff with team building, culture, all that other stuff. So, so I, I do like that one. Um, Scott at Scott's Children said, the, the dumbest thing that you can kind of say is in head-to-head games, QBA is blank and blank versus QBB. Therefore, QBA is better. Again, it kind of goes back to what I said with playoff, which is just a small sample size that you don't want to um, to go off of. Uh, Colin Dunphy at MoFoPod said, in Zach Kiefer's Luck podcast, Andrew Luck said you need a good run game to set up play action. Everyone agreed. How can this be? Yeah, though I, when I heard this during the podcast, I was surprised Andrew Luck said it because he was one of the smartest players in the league for a long time. I thought maybe he would have, you know, done done actual research on this, um, but no. And then the last ones are Rose City Peach and um, at Sports DPJ. David said the they both said the Christian Kirk contract wasn't bad by the Jaguars, which is a stretch. It was probably a bad contract, it but was. It was. Kirk, yeah, Kirk is a Kirk is a good player. I wish. I wish that contract didn't happen to him because now people will only compare him to that contract, which he'll never live up to. But like he actually should do pretty well with the Jaguars. Yeah.
1: I, I know from, from people in the league, uh, they, they saw Kirk as like Christian Kirk is like a 14 to $15 million receiver at, at most, like that's how much at most they were willing to pay for him. But yeah, 18 was, was, uh, was a lot. And Schefter repeat, uh, reported as 21, So, you know, that's, that should tell you what you need to know about Adam Schefter.
0: Mm -hmm. Yeah, that's true. Well, okay. So on on that note, um, oh, another one I liked was, was from Lovey who said, um, he said that, you know, black quarterbacks usually see like more people saying like, oh, defenses have figured them out more often than white quarterbacks, which is true because, uh, too high kind of affected Patrick Mahomes and Josh Allen. Similarly, like they both were amazing in 2020 with, with their efficiency stats and they both took a step back in their efficiency in 2021, and Mahomes got more of the oh defenses have figured them out than Josh Allen had. Lamar gets that a lot, um, you know, with defenses figuring it out, even though that's not true. So I think that's that's something that that people have to watch um, for for biases. But yeah, no thanks thanks for everyone who who replied. That was that was a lot of fun. Um, we'll we'll wrap up with our bet of the week and unhinged tweet. So now we'll be transitioning from cancelable football takes to our weekly bet and weekly unhinged tweet. So to start off for the bet, um, you know, I, I I'm all in on Rashawn Gary this year. Uh, You know, if you can get him in anything like trading card related or buy his stock anywhere, just put out a tweet that says, you think Rashawn Gary will have a breakout year, you know, just do something that you can, but if you want to make money off of it, you can bet him 40 to one to win defensive player of the year or 50 to one to lead the NFL in sacks. And I got both of those numbers from DraftKings. So Rashawn Geary had nine, 9.5 sacks last year, which is a pretty good number. Um, and you know, he was still, he has a ton of tools, you know, he's the number one recruit coming out of high school. He was a first round draft pick and the Packers just do a really good job of developing their players. And I think that the Packers are going to have the best defense in the NFL this year. So he's going to be showcased a lot as a part of the best defense. And, you know, Jair Alexander might be the best player on their defense, but he might not have the counting stats that Rashawn Gary ends up getting because it's easier to measure edge rushers. And, you know, I think he could take a huge leap in the sack department this year, um, you know, he had a 90.8 PFF pass rushing grade last season. So I could see him, you know, get up to 13, 14 stack uh, sacks because that defense is so stacked. So I'm, I'm buying all Rashawn Gary stock that I can this year. And, and that would be the, the bets to do it.
1: Yeah. I love it. Um, the, the interesting thing about Gary is like, this was like his first season where he was really, an impact player throughout the course of the season. He started all 16 games or he missed one game, but he started every game that he played in. Um, One of the things that I worry about with, with players like Gary is like, once you increase their snaps, like how does that affect their efficiency? Mm-hmm. And he was at, like, he had his most efficient season in the, in the season where he got the most snaps. So, you know, as a real full-time player and probably edge one in this defense, I am really excited to see how, um, you know how he does and the, the good thing about the packers defense we actually talked about run defense earlier in the episode like the the packers made sure to address their run defense woes d- drafting Devontae Wyatt in um it, and quay walker in the first round two georgia players on probably the one of the best defenses in college football history to uh try and attack some of their weaknesses in the run game on defense and so how this affects for Sean gary is if they have a better run defense, this is going to put them in better situations um, in terms of like expected pass, like the defense is going to be in more expected pass situations, So Gary won't have to worry about maybe like third and shorts where he has to worry about play action and the run and uh, like a standard drop back. He'll instead just have to worry about getting after the passer on, on third and longest more often. And I think Packers in general, because they're a pretty good, like they'll have a top 10 or t- at least above average offense uh defense or offenses will be passing against them more often than not. So I really like this pick and, um, you know, I'll definitely put some, put some money on it when I go back to Michigan in a couple weeks. Mm -hmm. So um, now we're going to move to the unhinged tweet. Um, This one's kind of a betting related one. It comes from the Ross Tucker podcast. So this guy, his name is, uh, goes by Simon Hunter NFL on Twitter. He was on Ross Tucker's podcast, and he he was saying like he's part of this. He's like the main guy in this like betting syndicate. Uh, First of all, if you're in a syndicate, you don't really make it known you're in a syndicate uh, because you know that's how you get like limited by books and stuff, or at at least that's how I think it is. But um, you know, he went on the pod, and he was like, he was kind of like boasting about like his betting prowess or whatever. Like, I've never had two losing back to back weeks. And if you are like a true pro better, like he claims he is in his bio, there's absolutely no way that number one, you can claim to be a pro better without betting, like at least like six, seven years. And in those six, seven years, you've never had losing weeks back to back. Like that is like, you're practically like insanely rich at that point. If you have, if you have never lost back to back weeks, um, and he got absolutely flamed by a ton of people on Twitter. Uh, Joey Knish, who I, I believe is actually a Lions fan, yeah. uh, but he, he quote tweeted and he was like, the only betting syndicate this clown has ever worked for is these nuts. Never had <laughs> back-to-back <laughs> losing weeks during an NFL season. LOL, sure, buddy. And I've never lost a bet on the Lions.
0: <laughs> <And> like- <laughs> And that was like
1: that was like one of the greatest replies i've like or i have <laughs> I've ever had but but yeah and, and the funny part is some some guy went into um the, the, uh, simon hunter who, who I'm talking about his his action network and action network is like an app where you can track your bets mm-hmm. and stuff like this the guy has a record of 216 wins to 219 losses oh. a win percentage of 48. Uh, percent he's down 11 units and I don't know how many years, but, but like uh, whatever he claimed on the podcast is completely untrue. And, and the idea that if you're a pro better, you're never going to have back-to-back losing weeks is like, is completely wrong. Cause it happens, it happens to everyone.
0: Yeah. Oh, that's, I hadn't seen that tweet, but wow. What a, what a very unhinged thing to say that that fits the, the theme of this perfectly. And like, I always think about like, whenever someone is on a podcast or a show, like boasting about their betting record, or, you know, s- some of the picks that they like or stuff like that. Like, we don't hear from the true Vegas sharks, because they don't want to get limited at books, they don't want, they don't want their edge to be out there for everyone mm-hmm. to kind of catch up on. We don't hear about until years after the fact, then like the rest of, of the, um, the betters kind of catch up. So like, I, I I am always wary of those type of people that, that say that type of stuff. But that's that's just very crazy to to boast about never having back-to-back losing weeks and then having your your action network account uh found so um but yeah that's that's a that's a great one to uh to wrap up this episode this was this was a lot of fun um you know to to share our cancelable takes and i'm glad like we got a lot of replies that we were able to to read off of and and wrap up here so you know we will be back next week with with some fun guests and and we'll be talking about, you know, what it's like to to team build with, you know, a quarterback that's not necessarily elite and like how you can kind of manage the ways around that. So be on the lookout for that episode. Um, and, and, you know, as always, like, feel free to to give feedback on on Twitter to us. Um, I can be found on Twitter at T.E.J. Analytics. Analytics. be found at Arjun in 100. Until then, I take the parts.